I want to walk into my principal's office and say, there's a right way to do this and there's a right way to fund it. If you're not going to do it right, shut it down. That's today's guest, author and speaker Scott Lang, sharing one of his biggest epiphanies from his recent State of Music Education survey. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. For over a decade, Scott Lang has been educating and entertaining audiences of all ages. As a nationally known leadership trainer, Scott conducts over 120 workshops annually and works with some of our country's finest educational groups and performing ensembles. Scott is a well-regarded author with over 10 publications to his credit, and he is the creator of the highly successful Be Part of the Music series. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan? Scott's most recent survey confirms that it's tough out there right now, so it's good for people to know that they're not alone. The survey results give them data to affirm that, as well as valuable information they can use for self-advocacy. What about you, Steve? Well, you've had the fortune to work with Scott a number of times in the past, but this was my first time, and I was struck by how passionate he was about everything that we discussed. He supports our nation's music teachers with the same energy that I imagine he brought to his high school band rehearsals. And we're all lucky for that. Very true. Our discussion focuses a lot on 512 performance ensembles, but there's much for any music teacher to glean as well. The survey is available at bepartofthemusic.org. Let's get to our conversation with Scott Lang. Scott Lang, welcome to the program. Thanks. I appreciate it, Steve. Can you please give us a quick background on the State of Music Education Survey? Can you tell us how it came to exist, what you've been trying to capture with it, and uh, how long have you been doing it? So the survey is in its fourth year, and it really started as a response to the pandemic. Um, and what was happening was I was getting a lot of calls from clients, friends, and, and industry partners and saying, you know, as a part of be part of the music, what do you see happening out there? And I hung up the phone after one of those calls and thought, I don't know. How's that possible? And so I thought, let me go find out. So I put together probably a 15-question survey, and I sent it out and uh, got an, a surprising number of responses, I mean, in the thousands. And it told me there's a need for this. And so the very next year, year two, we did uh, uh, the same thing. We expanded it just a little bit. But the primary purpose of year, of year two was year-over-year data. It wasn't just what's happening in the moment. We wanted to know how is it translating to year-over-year. So year three, um, we expanded it just a little bit, went from 12 questions to about 32 questions, and some of it being year-over-year -year data and some of it being new data. And in year four, which is this itineration, we asked 62 questions, I believe was the total number of questions. So we almost doubled the size of the survey. And what we did is we held over three components that were year-over-year, -year, and that was teacher morale, learning loss, and, and uh, enrollment. And we added three new components to the survey, analytics in the profession, budgeting, and supervision and oversight. So what were the big takeaways from year one to year two, for example? Not good and getting worse would be year one to year two. And for me, the purpose of the survey is, is really twofold. Obviously, we, we all want to know what's happening in the world. But the purpose of the survey is, number one, to let whoever's experiencing whatever, that they're not alone. Yeah. So if I'm a teacher and I'm like, my enrollment's down 25%, I want them to know it's not just them. It's happening everywhere. And the second part was to give them actionable data. So like the budgeting component now, we have average repair valuation, average instrument purchase, so that they can go to their administration and say, hey, 
listen, I'm getting $12 per kid and the national average is $18 a kid. So it's about building a community and providing actionable data. So what were your big takeaways after this year's results came in? Getting better, not back. There were a couple of epiphanies in this survey. And one of them was this point, which is I called the pandemic an earthquake. And if you'd asked me five months ago, I didn't know this. What I didn't see coming is, Alan, what happens after every earthquake? Aftershocks, man. Aftershocks. If you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said, well, sixth grade beginners aren't impacted anymore. We're back to normal. That's not the case. It's not. That we're seeing people, students, beginners in particular, who in theory shouldn't be impacted by the pandemic. They were in third grade, whatever it was. But the numbers are down and the learning loss is down. Whether that's readiness to learn, whether it's a shift in philosophy, the bottom line is the pandemic may be over, but its after effects are not. And what we're seeing is it's getting better. Learning loss is not as bad as it was last year. Enrollment's not as bad as it was last year, but it's not back yet. Now, I want to be really clear about this. This is my interpretation. Next year, we'll still be down about anywhere from 3 to 7% in enrollment. We'll still be down probably somewhere in the 7 to 10% in terms of learning loss. And I'm predicting it won't be till 2024 till we see normalization in terms of enrollment and learning loss. But then that sixth grade class has to work through the system for six more years. What about enrollment this year compared to last year? What's kind of the trends that you see there and the average decline? Everything is in halves. And again, to be clear, I'm painting with a really broad brush here. Like the impact for a high school in Texas is very different than an elementary school in California. Hmm. A low mitigation state versus a high mitigation state, the impact is significantly different. It's an additional 20% learning loss if you're in a high mitigation state. What I'm seeing is everything is occurring in half-lives. And so 30% enrollment loss and 22% enrollment loss two years ago translated into about anywhere from 9 to 16 to 17% enrollment loss and 15 to 20% learning loss this year. I'm projecting next year to be anywhere from 3 to 7% pre-pandemic loss in enrollment. I don't have a prediction for learning loss, so I don't, I don't want to make one. And so if you look at half cycles, I'm seeing 2024 is a basically reset back to pre-pandemic levels. But again, in a low mitigation state, they may already be back. You take a look at teacher morale as well. Is it fair to say that teacher morale has not bounced back? Anecdotally, I could tell you it hasn't, but it's gotten the, worse. Does your interpretation? It's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. Talk about that Let a little me, bit. Um, the data says it's getting worse. And what's happening, it's no different than politics or company. It's polarizing. You're extreme. You're either this just stinks and I'm I I'm struggling. Or, you know, I'm just happy to be teaching again. I'm happy to have kids in front of my face. What we're seeing is people are moving out of the middle and they're saying, I feel like crap or I'm just happy again. So if I were to summarize some of these insights so far, here's what I'm hearing. We still have measurable learning loss. Teacher morale has actually gotten worse, but resilience and passion are keeping people going. Enrollment is still down around 15% year over year. And we are going to be dealing with COVID aftershocks for another six years, and we shouldn't expect pre-pandemic norms until 2030, especially in high mitigation states. Is that about what you take out of this? That's what Scott Lang took out of this. Yeah. And I believe if you look at the data, you'll get a similar take. What can and should 
people who are teaching K-12 music right now, general music teachers, choir directors, band directors, orchestra directors, what should they do with this information? Now that we know it, we've got it. How could we use this to be more effective in the classroom? I'm going to give you two answers. Number one is, I don't know what you should do because a general music teacher is going to do different things with this data than a high school orchestra teacher. Uh, a marching band teacher in Texas that's likely fully back next year. I mean, they were fully back instructionally rehearsal-wise this year, but in Rome, everything's back, is going to have a different actionable item than a teacher in the Bay Area that teaches beginners. So I want to start with that. And I always tell people, I, I can't tell you what to do. I can only tell you what I would do, but that's a fair question. And what I would say is number one is choose happiness. And let me tell you why. When I transferred schools, I, I was a teacher and then I became an administrator and that was not a good fit for me. Uh, and I knew within six weeks, I couldn't do this job anymore. It's too negative. I, and I, instead of leaving the profession, which I almost did, I got transferred to another school to be a band director again. They want a block schedule. And I tried to teach the way I always taught on a block schedule. I had a wind ensemble, one to a part and grade six and let's go. And at the end of year one, I was miserable. And I, I'll bet the kids weren't super happy. Now they've been through three band directors in four years. So I'm sure they were happier than previously, but I realized like I was angry because I'd one to a part. And if a kid missed a class, I didn't see him for a week. I was frustrated that I wasn't getting the rehearsal. To and I went, this is stupid. This is, this is a beast of my own making. So I turned it back into a concert band, not a wind ensemble. So if a kid's gone, he's gone. I have another sax player to cover the part. I dropped it from grade five and a half to grade five. I put the concerts one week further apart. In other words, what matters most, if a kid has a bad math experience, they take math next year. If a kid has a bad music experience, it's done forever. So for myself, and more importantly, for the kids, I changed everything about what I was doing to make myself happier and make the kids happier. So when you look at this data and you realize enrollment's down, you can be frustrated and angry about it, or you can choose just to be happy that you have the kids you have. When you look at learning loss, you can say, I can't do grade six anymore, or you can just choose to be happy you're doing grade five. That leads nicely into something I wanted to ask you about, because I know you're often out working with schools, especially, for example, maybe marching bands. And I know that when I was a high school band director, I would like to say that one of the reasons that I hired leadership consultants to come in and work with the band was just because it was the right thing to do or a good thing for the kids. But I'll be honest, I did it because, we, you know, we wanted an edge. We knew that having good student leadership would make our product better and we might do better at contests. So I'm curious, you say choose happiness, and I wonder, in your experience, how much of our unhappiness is related to maybe going out and going to these competitions and having to compare ourselves to other people and the role maybe competition plays or comparing plays in our ability or inability to choose happiness? Yeah. Do math teachers get compared to other math teachers? Do they go to competitions and get their graded? Are their scores published? And the answer is no. You know, and, the, and here's the thing that's really interesting. Again, anecdotal. It's about 3% a year. So when I was in high school, I was in a, you know, a really good high school band. We were really good. And I mean, I'm sure we only did 16 pages of drill. And yeah, we used flip folders and it was grade three music. And yeah, the step size was not eight to five. It was like 32 to five. And yeah, it was March 16 and hold 64. 
Now there are 13 year olds out there doing 114 pages of drill with choreography, the music of Tchaikovsky by memory. 3% a year is what I see out there, anecdotally. If you, Alan, if your band marched next year the way they marched this year, your score goes down 3% because everyone else got better. And I know of no other profession that does that. Now, you can't add percentages, statistically speaking. At least that's what math people tell me. But over a four-year life cycle, that's 12%. So 12% harder. Did, I'm just curious. Did Shakespeare get 12% harder in the last four years? Nope, I don't think it did. Did the periodic table of elements grow by 12% over the last four years? Nope, no, nope, no, nope, I don't think it did. Did we add 12% more foreign languages? No, it didn't. That the amount of time in a day hasn't changed, but the demands on that day have changed significantly in the last 15 years. So I, I'm summarizing the choosing happiness. Be content with easier music. Enjoy the students you have. Find the blessings in the job that you have. And all of that is like, don't compare. Be content with easier music. Don't compare yourself to people playing harder music. Enjoy the students you have. Don't compare that to the students you wish you had or you could have had. And find blessings in the job that you have. Don't worry about how the grass is always greener. But then there's this expectation that we go to contest. Would you advise directors to ignore, like if I'm unhappy and I don't have the resources, should I ignore that everybody else is like getting 3% better each year and just like be content with a lower placement or not going? Or like, what are you seeing work for directors who feel good about their day to day? I, as a parent now, feel very different about music education. I think if you talk to my former students or you watch me as a teacher, I was pretty fire and brimstone, dude. I mean, we achieved, we achieved, and I pushed. And watching my sons go through music, I don't care. I don't care if they play grade six music. I want him to not be on a street corner Friday nights. I want him to have friends. I want him to have memories. And so I, Scott Lang, view music education through two very different lenses. And I see a place for both. I believe in high achievement. I believe in rigor. I believe in, in pushing students. But I also believe that no one ever came up to me and said, Mr. Lang, thank you for the superior contest. That's not what kids remember. And that's not the value. Now, that rigor, that uh, precocity, that pushing the envelope, that is the vehicle that we're transporting kids in. But the payload are the lessons they take away from it. Uh, I learned to work hard. I learned to care. I learned to be a part of a team. And the balance point, rigor versus accessibility, the balance point between demand and joy, that's a really hard line, Alan. And, and it's a line that moves almost daily for me. I think that something that you said in response to this question uh, several minutes ago was two things. One was choose happiness. Do you remember what number two was? The actionable item is look at the data and do two things. Be empowered that you're not alone in whatever experience you're having. And number two, compare it to national norms and trends and share that with your administration, whether it's budgeting. So if, you, if your principal's like, well, you have four classes next year. I got to cut you to three. You need to take the stand and go, yes, but we're trending in halves. We believe it will be returned. If you cut this class next year, we're projecting a 2025 full return. And you, that you, you want to be empowered that you're not alone, but then share the data with decision makers, whether it's 
any of this, any of the six sections, whether it's enrollment, learning loss, um, 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 budgeting, uh, oversight or teacher morale and share it with the decision makers so that they see a holistic lens. Because the two things I found that move decision makers, number one is data. Number two is comparison. I need a new band room. Well, that's great. And here's all the data why I need it. But here's what moves the needle. My rival just built one. What? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't. We, we can't have them outperforming us. You mean our rival has an assistant band director? We don't? Like, those are the two things that in my personal experience as a teacher, move the needle. Data and comparison. Have you got any other bits of advice based on anything you're seeing? Because you work with tens of thousands of students a year, hundreds of directors. You go to all different states. Um, it, do you think that their teachers missing the boat on simple things that they could do to make things better for themselves and their students that we haven't already talked about? There are a couple of epiphanies that occurred in this survey, but one of the most actionable ones is the budget component. I'm going to make up a number here, but I'm going to be close. 92% of music programs don't have a five-year budget plan, don't have a depreciation schedule. That's an easy, actionable item where if you use our funding request generator, which is our be part of the music dashboard, that you could develop that very quickly. And if you went to your administrator and said, here's the national average, and we're soon going to have the ability to do it by state for repair and replacement of instruments. And here's what we spend. And here's a five-year plan. I think that's low-hanging fruit. When we looked at ESSER, 63% didn't even ask for a penny, not even a box of reeds. It's the largest windfall to music, uh, largest windfall to education in the history of this country. 63% didn't even ask for money. And so develop that five-year plan. That's the easiest low-hanging fruit. And I would challenge everyone, not just in finances, develop a five-year plan for your program, for enrollment, for retention, for programming, for staffing, for budgeting. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, but as the program director, you're the CEO. And CEOs don't think in nine-month increments. They think in nine-year increments. So you said there's a reference on your website to help people figure that out. Can you talk a little bit more about that and where they'd find that? Yeah, so the, the B part of the music uh, is free retention and recruitment resources. We started it 10 years ago. It's just ridiculously cool. About six weeks ago, we completely reimagined it, and it's now a personalized portal. And so it's not just a static website. Every portal looks different based on the data that you enter when you create it. And so we release something every single day on that portal that's new that day. It's really super cool. But we took an ESSER calculator we built and we reformatted it and it's now called the funding request generator and it's exhaustive. It's like 75 different questions. Clarinets, flutes, you answer about, I need two flutes, I need six clarinets, I need two additional staff, I need private. And it creates a budget request for you, complete with the email that you would send to your administrators. And that's free to create that account? Everything at Be Part of the Music is free. Awesome resource there. Uh, anything else you want to share about the survey or things that you have been noticing uh, these last few months? Yeah, so the survey highlighted a couple, what I think are epiphanies for me. Number one, the aftershock. Um, the second thing is 
a stunning amount of people and programs don't have a financial plan. Number three, 65% of teachers have neither a department chair or a fine arts coordinator. They're flying on their own. No oversight, and more importantly, no advocate. 65%. The fourth takeaway is 2030 is the date when we flush it from the system, in my opinion. Next year, we're kind of back to normal, then six years to get them through the system. 2030 is when the group that was most impacted, the donut hole, will graduate college. Fewer kids, fewer music makers, fewer music majors, fewer music teachers. And the average lifespan of a teacher, according to our survey respondents, was 20.8 years, which means guess when they, that group hits retirement? 2030. They're going to happen at the same time. The void of potential music teachers and the void of retire and, and the wave of retirees are going to hit at the same time. I see a real serious shortage in 2030 of music teachers. And then the last one, I'm, I'm, if you don't mind, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to pose in the form of a question. Is there a right way to teach music? And if you would ask me prior survey, I would have maybe anecdotally answered the question. I would have maybe hypothesized. And the survey clearly delineated there's a right way to teach music. And before I explain that, I want to say, I'm embarrassed that this was not day one of my music education undergrad series. Day one, day one. How did I get to 32 years and not know this? There's a right way to teach music. We looked at learning loss. We looked at enrollment. We looked at attrition and retention as best as we could. The superimposed pullout program is killing kids. It's as clear as the day is, is bright. It's something like 180 lost instructional days. There's two models. Fourth, fifth grade, we pull them out every two, three days. And I'll call it the Texas model. We start in sixth grade. We meet five days a week. It's middle school. And the anecdotal and the empirical evidence suggests that the pull-out program is killing music education. The reason anecdotal, Texas bands are what they are, is in addition to fantastic teaching, the model's correct. If I told you we were going to teach math every third day, would that be okay? If I told you that we were going to use 49% fewer instructional minutes for English, would you be okay with that? And it started anecdotally watching my own sons in a district that requires music for every child in fourth and fifth grade. Yay, band, choir, orchestra. I'm so proud of my district. By middle school, 70% had quit. And I know all these kids. I coach them. And they're all like, hey, Coach Scott, I'm not doing band. Why? I'm not, I tried. I'm not any good at it. Well, you're not any good because you went every fourth day. And you forgot your instrument that day. So it was really every eighth day. You're not good because we didn't prepare you to be good. We built the model wrong. Every data point in this survey screams there's a right way and a wrong way to teach music. And 40% of America teaches it wrong. I want to walk into my principal's office and say, there's a right way to do this and there's a right way to fund it. If you're not going to do it right, shut it down. It's irresponsible. It's unethical and it's inappropriate. 
Well, Scott Lang, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you for your service to music education by uh, donating countless hours and effort to put together this state of music education survey and to go over the data and help come up with some takeaways from it. It's a monumental task and the music teachers uh, all collectively. Thank you. You're very kind, but, but I want to be clear my hardest day doesn't pale to a teacher who's standing in front of kids. So I appreciate your kind words, but the real warriors are the people who stand in front of kids, but thank you. Amen. Can we close down with a lightning round on some uh, lighter topics? You bet. Let's go. What is your favorite dining establishment in the Phoenix area? Mexican food, period. Doesn't care where it is. I could eat Mexican food, breakfast, lunch, dinner, seven days a week. All right. What's a musical artist or piece of music that you wish more people knew about? Colin Hay. Do you know who he is? I don't. Men at Work. Bingo. After he left Men at Work, he did, he's doing acoustical stuff now, and it's stupid good. Go check out Colin Hay's acoustic stuff. Stupid good. All right. Do you have a book recommendation for our listeners? Two books. They're on my desk right now. If you're not reading Diane Ravitch, every educator in America should be reading her stuff. She is the most insightful, data-oriented expert on school systems in the world today. And this is the second one. It's got nothing to do with education music. It's Tony Robbins, Unshakable. And it's on my desk. I read it years ago. It's about financial planning. So Diane Ravitch and not his, not his motivational stuff, get Tony Robbins' book on financial planning called Unshakable because it is so incredibly well-written and actionable steps oriented. It will change how you think about money. Do you have a favorite film or TV series you've been enjoying recently? Mythic Quest on Apple TV. And I am counting down the days to Ted Lasso. I got 14 more days. 14 days. Yeah. You're talking to a couple of Mythic Quest fans here. We just got turned down to it recently, my family and I, and we are just, we watch it every night together. It's so awesome. Yep. I just enjoyed the pandemic episode last night. It was awesome. Yeah. We watched that episode last night. Yeah. Well, we're on the same track then. <laughs> And finally, if you would not have gone into education, what career do you think you might have had? School construction. I started on a committee at my school. They were renovating it, and I geeked out on it so hard after a year they made me the committee head. And then the next year, they gave me two additional prep hours, and I renovated two high schools. I'm fascinated by facilities and the relationship to learning. I would be in uh, school planning and facilities. Scott Lang, you've given a lot of your life to music education. We really appreciate your contributions to that and your contributions to today's podcast. Thanks a lot for being our guest. Thank you, gentlemen, and to all the teachers out there. Thank you to, for what you do. Um, you are the heroes in this world. Teachers, nurses, and first responders to me their heroes and social workers. So thank you for all that you do. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaway. 
always. That's www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.